Section 13 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 9. The Emperor's Marriage. Part 1. A plebiscite, Louis-Napoleon's political panacea, was ordered December 20, 1851, two weeks after the coup d'état, to say if the people of France approved or disapproved the usurpation of the prince-president. The national approval as expressed in this plebiscite was overwhelming. Each peasant and artisan seemed to fancy he was voting to revive the past glories of France when expressing his approval of a prince Napoleon. The more thoughtful voters, like M. de Montalembert, considered that the coup d'état was a crushing blow struck at red republicanism, communism, the international society, and disorder generally. For a while the prince-president governed by decrees. Then a new legislative body was assembled. Its first duty was to revise the Constitution. The Republican Constitution of 1850 was in the main readopted, but with one important alteration. The Prince-President was to be turned into the Emperor Napoleon III, and the throne was to be hereditary in his family. After the passage of this measure it was submitted by another plebiscite to the people. The plebiscite is a universal suffrage vote of yes or no, in answer to some question put by the government to the nation. The question this time was, shall the prince-president become emperor? There were 7,800,000 eyes and 224,000 noes. When the news of this overwhelming success reached the Élysée, Louis-Napoleon sat so still and unmoved, smoking his cigar, that his cousin, Madame Bayocci, rushing up to him, shook him and exclaimed, quote, "'Is it possible that you are made of stone?' Having thus secured his elevation by the almost universal consent of Frenchmen, the new emperor's next step was to ensure his dynasty by a marriage that might probably give heirs to the throne. He chose the title Napoleon III because the son of the great Napoleon had been Napoleon II for a few days after his father's abdication at Fontainebleau in 1814. The next heir to the imperial dignities, Lucien Bonaparte having refused anything of the kind for himself or for his family, was Jérôme Napoleon, familiarly called Plonplon. He was the only son of Jérôme Bonaparte and the Princess Catherine of Württemberg. But Prince Napoleon, though clever, was willful and eccentric, and made a boast of being a red republican. Moreover, his father's Baltimore marriage had made his legitimacy more than doubtful. At any rate, Louis Napoleon was by no means desirous of passing on to him the succession to the empire and being now forty-four years old, he was desirous of marrying as soon as possible. When a boy, it had been proposed to marry him to his cousin Mathilde, and something like an attachment had sprung up between them. But after his fiasco at Strasbourg, he was no longer considered an eligible suitor either for Princess Mathilde, or another cousin who had been named for him, a Princess of Baden. Princess Mathilde was married to the Russian banker, Prince Demidorf, but when Louis-Napoleon became Prince-President, he requested her to preside at the Élysée. The new emperor, or his advisers, looked round at the various marriageable princesses belonging to the smaller courts of Germany. The sister of that Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern, whose selection for the throne of Spain led afterwards to the Franco-Prussian War, was spoken of. But the lady most seriously considered was the Princess Adelaide of Hohenlohe. She was daughter of Queen Victoria's half-sister Theodora, and to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, as heads of the family, the matter was referred. A recent memoir writer tells us of seeing the Queen at Windsor when the matter was under discussion. 
the queen and her husband were apparently not averse to the alliance, hesitating only on the grounds of religion and morals. But it is doubtful how far the new emperor went personally in the affair. His inclination had for some time pointed to the reigning beauty of Paris, Mademoiselle Eugénie de Montijot. This young lady's grandfather was Captain Fitzpatrick, of a good old Scottish family, which had in past times married with the Stuarts. Captain Fitzpatrick had been American consul at a port in southern Spain. He had a particularly charming daughter, who made a brilliant Spanish marriage, her husband being the Count de Teba, or Marquis de Montijot, for he bore both titles. The Montijos were connected with the grandest ducal families in Spain and Portugal, and even with the royal families of those nations. The Count de Teba died while his two daughters were young, and they were left under the guardianship of their very charming mother. The elder married the Duke of Alva, the younger became the Empress Eugénie. Eugénie was for some time at school in England at Clifton. She was described by those who knew her as a pretty, sprightly little girl, much given to independence, and something of a tomboy, a character there is reason to think she preserved until it was modified by the exigencies of her position. Mr. George Tickner of Boston frequently mentioned Madame de Teba to his friends as a singularly charming woman. In 1818 he wrote home to a friend in America, quote, I knew Madame de Teba in Madrid, and from what I saw of her there and at Malaga, I do not doubt she is the most cultivated and interesting woman in Spain. Young, beautiful, educated strictly by her mother, a Scotchwoman, who for this purpose carried her to London and kept her there six or seven years, possessing extraordinary talents and giving an air of originality to all she says and does, she unites in a most bewitching manner the Andalusian grace and frankness to a French facility in her manners and a genuine English thoroughness in her knowledge and accomplishments. She knows the chief modern language as well, and feels their different characters, and estimates their literature aright. She has the foreign accomplishments of singing, painting, playing, etc., joined to the natural one of dancing, in a high degree. In conversation she is brilliant and original, yet with all this she is a true Spaniard, and as full of Spanish feelings as she is of talent and culture." Washington Irving, in 1853, thirty-five years later, writing to his nephew, speaks in equal praise of Madame de Teba. Quote, I believe I told you, he says, that I knew the grandfather of the Empress, old Mr. Fitzpatrick. In 1827 I was in the house of his son-in-law, Count Teba, at Granada, a gallant, intelligent gentleman, much cut up in the wars, having lost an eye and been maimed in a leg and hand. Some years after, in Madrid, I was invited to the house of his widow, Madame de Montijot, one of the leaders of Ton. She received me with the warmth and eagerness of an old friend. She claimed me as the friend of her late husband. She subsequently introduced me to the little girls I had known in Granada, now fashionable belles in Madrid." In some lines of Walter Savage Landor, Madame de Montijot was addressed as a lodestar of her sex. The Marquis de Montijot had been an adherent of Joseph Bonaparte while the latter was King of Spain, and his eye had been put out at the Battle of Salamanca. He was a liberal in politics, and his house was always open to cultivated men. Such was the ancestry of the beautiful young lady who, tall, fair, and graceful, with hair like one of Titian's beauties, was travelling with her mother from capital to capital, after the marriage of her sister to the Duke of Alva, and who spent the winters of 1850, 1851, and 1852 in the French capital. Mademoiselle Eugénie had conceived a romantic admiration for the young prince who at Strasbourg and Boulogne had been so unfortunate. Her father had been a staunch adherent of Bonaparte, 
and she is said to have pleaded with her mother at one time to visit the prisoner at Ham and to place her fortune at his disposal. This circumstance, when confided to the prince-president, disposed him to be interested in the young lady. She and her mother were often at the Élysée, at Fontainebleau, and at Compiègne. Mademoiselle de Montijo was a superb horsewoman, and riding was the emperor's especial personal accomplishment. On one occasion they got lost together in the forest at Compiègne, and then society began to make remarks upon their intimacy. The emperor was indeed most seriously in love with Mademoiselle de Montijo. It is said, on the authority of M. de Goncourt, that in one of their rides he asked her, with strange frankness, if she had ever been in love with any man. She answered with equal frankness, quote, I may have had fancies, sire, but I have never forgotten that I was Mademoiselle de Montijot. Such a project of marriage was not approved by the emperor's family, it was not favoured by his ministers, and the ladies of his court were all astir. At a ball given on New Year's Day, 1853, by the emperor at the Tuileries, the wife of a cabinet minister was rude and insulting to Mademoiselle de Montijot. Seeing that she looked troubled, the emperor inquired the cause, and when he knew it he said quietly, quote, "'Tomorrow no one will dare to insult you again.'" There is also a story, which seems to rest on good authority, that a few weeks before this, at Compiègne, he had placed a crown of oak-leaves on her head, saying, quote, "'I hope soon to replace it with a better one.'" Like the Empress Josephine, she had had it prophesied to her in her girlhood that she should one day wear a crown. The day after the occurrence at the ball at the Tuileries, the Duc de Morny waited on Madame de Montijo with a letter from the Emperor, formally requesting her daughter's hand. The ladies, after this, removed to the Élysée, which was given to them, and preparations for the marriage went on apace. In less than a month afterwards, Eugénie de Montijo was Empress of France. Here is the Emperor's own official announcement of his intended marriage. Quote, I accede to the wish so often manifested by my people in announcing my marriage to you. The union which I am about to contract is not in harmony with old political traditions, and in this lies its advantage. France, by her successive revolutions, has been widely sundered from the rest of Europe. A wise government should so rule as to bring her back within the circle of ancient monarchies. But this result will be more readily obtained by a frank and straightforward policy, by a loyal intercourse, than by royal alliances, which often create false security, and subordinate national to family interests. Moreover, past examples have left superstitious beliefs in the popular mind. The people have not forgotten that for sixty years foreign princesses have mounted the steps of the throne only to see their race scattered and proscribed, either by war or revolution. One woman alone appears to have brought with her good fortune, and lives more than the rest in the memory of the people, and this woman, the wife of General Bonaparte, was not of royal blood. We must admit this much, however. In 1810 the marriage of Napoleon I with Marie-Louise was a great event. It was a bond for the future, and a real gratification to the national pride. But when, in the face of ancient Europe, one is carried by the force of a new principle to the level of the old dynasties, it is not by affecting an ancient descent and endeavouring at any price to enter the family of kings that one compels recognition. It is rather by remembering one's origin, it is by preserving one's own character, and assuming frankly towards Europe the position of a parvenu, a glorious title when one rises by the suffrages of a great people. Thus impelled, as I have been, to part from the precedents that have been hitherto followed, my marriage is only a private matter. It remained for me to choose my wife. 
she who has become the object of my choice is of lofty birth french in heart and education and by the memory of the blood shed by her father in the cause of the empire she has as a spaniard the advantage of not having a family in france to whom it would be necessary to give honours and dignities gifted with every quality of the heart she will be the ornament of the throne as in the hour of danger she would be one of its most courageous defenders a pious catholic she will address one prayer with me to heaven for the happiness of france kindly and good she will show in the same position i firmly believe the virtues of the empress josephine the state coaches of the first empire were regilded for the occasion the crown diamonds were drawn from the hiding-place where they had lain since louis philippe's time and were reset for the lady who was to wear them while her apartments at the tuileries were rapidly prepared the emperor was radiant he had followed his inclination and now that his choice was made it seemed to receive universal approval the london times said quote, mademoiselle de montijo knows better the character of france than any princess who could have been fetched from a german principality she combines by her birth the energy of the scottish and spanish races and if the opinion we hold of her be correct she is as napoleon says made not only to adorn the throne but to defend it in the hour of danger the municipal council of paris voted six hundred thousand francs to buy her a diamond necklace as a wedding present very gracefully she declined the necklace but accepted the money with which she endowed an orphan asylum the wedding day was january twenty ninth eighteen fifty three crowds lined the streets as the bride and her cortege drove to the tuileries where they were received by the grand chamberlain and other court dignitaries who conducted the bride to the first salon there she was received by prince napoleon and his sister the princess mathilde who introduced her into the salon where the emperor with his uncle king jerome surrounded by a glittering throng of cardinals marshals admirals and great officers of state stood ready to receive her thence at nine o'clock she was led by the emperor to the salle des maréchaux and seated beside him on a raised throne the marriage contract was then read and signed by the bride and bridegroom and by all the princes and princesses present the bride wore a marvellous dress of alençon point lace clasped with a diamond and sapphire girdle made for the empress marie louise and she looked said a beholder quote, the imperial beauty of a poet's vision the emperor was in a general's uniform he wore the collar of the legion of honour which his uncle the great emperor used to wear he wore also the collar of the golden fleece that had once belonged to the emperor charles v the civil marriage being concluded the imperial pair and the wedding guests passed into the theatre where a cantata composed by aubert for the occasion was sung the empress robed in lace and glittering in jewels seemed says an eye-witness to realize the picture presented of herself in the composer's words quote, espagne bien-aimée où le ciel est vermeil c'est toi qui l'a formé d'un rayon de soleil End quote. ah beautiful spain with thy skies ever bright thou hast formed her for us from a ray of sunlight when the cantata had been sung the grand master of the ceremonies conducted the bride as yet only half married back to the elysee the next morning all paris was astir to see the wedding procession pass to the cathedral of notre dame early in the morning the emperor had repaired to the elysee where in the chapel he and the empress had heard mass and after making their confession had partaken of the holy communion there were two hundred thousand sightseers in paris that day in addition to the usual population the empress wore upon her golden hair the crown that the first napoleon had placed upon the head of marie-louise the body of the church was filled with men 
ambassadors, military and naval officers, and high officials. Their wives were in the galleries. As the great doors of the cathedral were opened to admit the bridal procession, a broad path of light gleamed from the door up to the altar, adding additional brilliancy to the glittering scene. Up the long aisle the emperor led his bride, flashing with the light of jewels, among them the unlucky regent diamond, which glittered on her bosom. After the Spanish fashion she crossed her brow, her lips, her heart, her thumb, as she knelt for the nuptial benediction. The ceremony over, the archbishop conducted the married pair to the porch of the cathedral, and they drove along the quai to the Tuileries. The first favour the empress asked of her husband was the pardon of more than four thousand unfortunate persons still exiled or imprisoned for their share in the risings that succeeded the coup d'état. When Washington Irving heard of the marriage he wrote, quote, Louis Napoleon and Eugénie de Montijo, Emperor and Empress of France, he whom I received as an exile at my cottage on the Hudson, she whom at Granada I have dandled on my knee. The last I saw of Eugénie de Montijo, she and her gay circle had swept away a charming young girl, beautiful and accomplished, my dear young friend, into their career of fashionable dissipation. Now Eugénie is on a throne, and the other a voluntary recluse in a convent of one of the most rigorous orders. This convent is near Biarritz, where the nuns take vows of silence like the monks of La Trappe. The empress, when at Biarritz, never failed to visit her former friend, who was permitted to converse with her. The beautiful woman thus raised to the imperial throne was a mixed character, not so perfect as some have represented her, but entirely to be acquitted of those grave faults that envy or disappointed expectations have attributed to her. Her character united kind-heartedness with inconsideration, imprudence with austerity, ardent feeling with great practical common sense. Probably the emperor understood her very little at the time of his marriage, and that she long remained to him an enigma may have been one of her charms. With the impetuosity of her disposition and the intrepidity that had characterized her girlhood, she found it hard to submit to the restraints of her position, and the emperor had occasion frequently to remonstrate with her on her indifference to etiquette and public opinion. It was not until after her visit to Windsor in 1855 that she could be induced to establish court rules at the Tuileries, and to prescribe for herself and others, in public, a strict system of etiquette. But in her private hours, among her early friends, in the circle of ladies admitted to her intimacy, the empress was less discreet. Her impressions were apt to run into extremes. She indulged in whims like other pretty women. Yet she was never carried by her romantic feelings or her enthusiasm beyond her power of self-control. Though careless of etiquette in private life, whenever a great occasion came she could act with imperial dignity. Although she often experienced ingratitude, she was always generous. She was as ready to solicit favors and pardons as was the Empress Josephine. Sometimes she was even sorely embarrassed to find arguments in favor of her protégés. Ah, mon Dieu! she cried once, when pleading for the pardon of a workman. How could he be guilty? He has a wife and five children to support. He could have had no time for conspiracy. As a wife, she was devoted not only to the public interests of her husband, but to his personal welfare. She was constantly anxious lest he should suffer from overwork, and her little select evening parties, which some people found fault with, were instituted by her with the chief object of amusing him. Ben Jonson makes it a reproach against a lady of the sixteenth century that she would not, quote, suffer herself to be admired, end quote. No such reproach could be addressed to the Empress Eugénie. Few women conscious of their power to charm will fail to exercise it. 
in the case of an empress, young, lively, of an independent and adventurous spirit, and very beautiful, all who approached her thought better of themselves from her apparent appreciation of their claims to consideration. And indeed, in her position was it not the duty of the successor of Josephine to be gracious and charming to everybody. Unfortunately, the ladies who most enjoyed the intimacy of the Empress Eugénie were foreigners. She seems to have felt a certain distrust of Frenchwomen, and considering the ingratitude she often met with from those she served, it is hardly surprising that she preferred the intimacy of women who could not look to her for favours. One of the ladies most intimate with the Empress was the wife of Prince Richard Metternich, the Austrian ambassador. This lady seems to have had personal and political ends in view, and to have succeeded in inducing the Empress to adopt and further them. That she was a dangerous and false friend may be judged from a speech she made when remonstrated with for countenancing and encouraging a project, favoured by the Empress, of making a promenade in the forest of Fontainebleau with her court ladies in skirts, which, like those in the old Scotch ballad, should be kilted up to the knee. Quote, you would not have advised your own Empress, it was said to her, to appear in such a garb. Quote, of course not, replied the ambassadress, but my Empress is of royal birth, a real Empress, while yours, ma chère, was Mademoiselle de Montijot. Brought up in private life, not early trained to the self-abnegation demanded of princesses, the Empress Eugénie did not bring into her new sphere all the aplomb and seriousness about little things which are early inculcated on ladies brought up to the profession of royalty. The character for which she had formed herself was that of a very charming woman, and one secret of her fascination was the sincerity of the interest she took in those around her. She loved to study character, to see into men's souls. She loved to be adored, while irresponsively she received men's homage. She especially liked the society of famous men, and when she was to meet them she took pains to inform herself on the subjects about which they were most likely to converse. That Queen Victoria loves her as a sister and a friend is a testimony to her dignity and goodness, and we have her husband's own opinion of her, published on her fête day, December 15, 1868, after nearly sixteen years of marriage. The Emperor had under his control a monthly magazine called Le Dix Décembre, in which he often inserted articles from his own pen. The manuscript of this, in his own handwriting, was found in 1870 in the sack of the Tuileries. He omits all mention of his wife's Scotch ancestry, neither does he allude to her schooldays in England. He speaks of her as a member of one of the most distinguished families in Spain, extols her father's attachment to the house of Bonaparte, and tells how she and her sister were placed at the Sacré-Cœur, near Paris, declaring that, quote, she acquired, we may say, the French before the Spanish language, end quote. He goes on to speak of her, not as the leader of a giddy circle of fashion in Madrid, as Washington Irving describes her, but as the thoughtful, studious young girl, with a precocious taste for social problems and for the society of men of letters, and he adds that after her marriage her simple, natural tastes did not disappear. Quote, after her visit to the cholera patients at Amiens, he says, nothing seemed to surprise her more than the applause that everywhere celebrated her courage. She seemed at last distressed by it. At Compiègne, he also tells us, nothing can be more attractive than five o'clock tea à l'impératrice, though, he adds slyly, sometimes she is a little too fond of argument. Assuredly she filled a difficult place, and filled it well. But the court of the Second Empire was all spangles and tinsel. It was composed of men and women, all more or less adventurers. It was the court of the nouveau riche and of a mushroom aristocracy. There were prizes to be won and pleasures to be enjoyed, and it was, quote, like as it was in the days of Noah, 
until the flood came and swept them all away. End quote. In the midst of the crowd that composed this court, the emperor and the empress shine out as the best. Both wanted to do their duty, as they understood it, to France. Whether it was the emperor's fault or his misfortune is still undecided. But with one or two exceptions, he was able to attach to himself only keen-witted adventurers and mediocre men. Among the women, not one who was really superior rose above the crowd. The empress led a giddy circle of married women, as in her youth, according to Washington Irving, she had led a giddy circle of young girls. The two most able men among the emperor's advisers were his own kinsmen, Count Walewski, who died in 1868, and the Duc de Morny, a man calm, polished, socially amiable, and so clever that Guizot once said to him, quote, My dear Morny, you are the only man who could overturn the empire, but you will never be foolish enough to do it. End quote. By his death, in 1865, Louis-Napoleon was bereft of his ablest adviser. Persigny, or Fialin, had been the close personal friend of the emperor in his exile, and took a prominent part in the abortive expedition to Boulogne. In his youth he had led a disreputable life, and was not a man of great intellect, but he was presumed to be devoted to his old comrade. His friendship, however, had not always a happy effect upon the fortunes of his master. In 1872 he made a miserable end of his adventurous life, after having turned against the emperor in his adversity. Fleury was another personal friend of Louis-Napoleon, and was probably his best. The prince-president had distinguished him when he was only a subaltern in the army. He had enlisted in the ranks, and had done good service in Algeria. In the emperor's last days of failing health he loved to keep Fleury beside him. But the empress was jealous of her husband's friend, and used her influence to have him honorably exiled to St. Petersburg as French ambassador. This post he occupied when the Franco-Prussian War broke out, so that he could be of little help to his master. St. Arnaud had been made a marshal and minister of war, in spite of having been twice turned out of the French army. M. Rouet had charge of the emperor's financial concerns, and Fou was a man who understood bureau work, and how to manipulate government machinery. Whoever might be the emperor's ministers, this little clique of his personal adherents, de Morny, Persigny, Saint-Arnaud, Fleury, Rouet, and Fou, were always around their master, giving him their advice and sharing, so far as he allowed anyone to share, his intimate counsels. The members of the Bonaparte family were an immense expense to the emperor, and gave him no little trouble. They were not the least thirsty among those who thronged around the fountain of wealth and honour, and their importunate demands upon the emperor's bounty led to a perpetual and reckless waste of money. The empress frequently remonstrated with her husband in regard to his lavish largesses and too general expenditure. Contrary to what has been generally supposed, she was herself orderly and methodical in her expenditures and accounts, always carefully examining her bills, and though by the emperor's express desire she always expended the large amount annually allowed her, she never exceeded that sum. Unhappily, the revived imperialism of Louis-Napoleon was not, like legitimacy, a cause, but to most persons who supported it, it was a speculation. Adherents had therefore to be attracted to it by hopes of gain, and all services had to be handsomely rewarded. End of section 13